You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. We're in the book of John this morning as we are going through the Bible in a year, just going one book after another all the way through. And the first week of December, we'll be in the book of Revelation to finish it uh, as we started in Genesis back at the first of the year uh, in 2021. So it's been a great journey, I think, for our church and a chance to really understand the entire Bible. That's the goal, is that everyone who calls to search their home or even comes the first time, catches up online, whatever it might be, can have a working knowledge of every book of the scriptures. Uh, we're in the book of John. John today, the last gospels, we've already made it through after today, uh, the first four books of the New Testament. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment before we jump in. I got, we got word, if you've been online this morning at all or seen the news, that Coach Bowden passed away uh, either late last night or this morning. Uh, so we're grateful for his life. Obviously, it's very relevant for Tallahassee. Uh, it's relevant for me as well. I'm, I'm One, I'm from Tallahassee, and I think you can credit Coach Bowden for a lot of what Tallahassee is today. I mean, how much... It does a local commerce and, and local growth, how much is it tied to a university and how much is a university tied to a successful football program? I mean, those things, those things really matter for growth. Uh, but the one thing that matters for me really is that, uh, so Coach Bowden led Mark Richt, longtime Georgia, and was also head coach at Miami, uh, led him to know the Lord, led him to Christ. And Mark Richt led one of my really good friends, like a guy that I do thanks, my family does Thanksgiving with. I mean, that level of friend uh, to Christ. Uh, so that legacy of just things that don't even show up, you know, and then the newspaper, all, they're going to talk about wins and all those kind of things and, and being, uh, you know, a great person. But so much more than that, these things that only show up in heaven, that I have a friend who was led to Christ by someone who was led to Christ by Bobby Bowden. And now my friend sends missionaries all around the world through his job. I mean, how incredible is that? Right? That's just what's on my mind as I think about Coach Bowden, is that spiritual legacy uh, more than anything, the amount of people he led to Christ. And there's a lot of people in Tallahassee today, because a lot of former Florida State players of all different ages that didn't play in the NFL, that just went and worked normal jobs, but the amount of people in this town and across the state and across the country that at one time called him coach, you know, were, have at least, I promise you, they might not have responded to it, but they heard the gospel from Coach Bowden which is pretty incredible. So we, we're mindful of that today, and we're thankful that Coach Bowden's in heaven today, not because he was a great person, even though he was, but because Jesus died for his sins, and he believed that in faith. Uh, so let's pray together. Father, we are thankful uh, for your word that we have, for the book of John, and just the life that is in that book, and what it tells us about Jesus. I ask that we found faithful today in presenting that, that we will receive that, those who are hearing, with open eyes and open mind and open hearts, Lord, we pray for the Bowden family today, for all the former players, anyone associated with Coach Bowden, we ask that uh, you just give them peace today and also that his death will point people to life found in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that so much of what I'm seeing online already today is talking about his spiritual impact. Lord, I ask that you let that message go all across this country and people will hear about Jesus because of Coach Bowden's passing, that what we may see as a bad thing in this world is actually a huge gain for the kingdom of God. I ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, be with all of our churches today as they gather. We will all preach the name of Jesus. Be with us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. So John chapter 1, I've heard it said before that the very beginning, the first eight verses are the foyer into God's heart and like the foyer, like the entrance into God's mission. Sarah read some of this. I'm going to read a little bit more. I'm going to kind of read over it again one more time. Not the whole 18 verses, but a few of them, where it says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is the Son of God. And the word was with God, and the word was God. 
In verse 14, we're going to see the world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, really God with us. God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, kind of a portable temple. Now Jesus is that with us. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. This is not John the author of this book, this is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Belief is a major theme of John. He wants us to believe, believe, and believe this good news, and he's gonna present to us Jesus so that we will believe. He was not the light, John the Baptist was not the light, he was not the Messiah, but he came to testify about the light. The true light. So if there's true lights, it means there must be false lights. The true light is Jesus Christ. The light to everyone was coming into the world. So this is talking about for us is the incarnation. We could call it the in-fleshness of the second person of the Trinity. God's foyer into really the life of this world. So this is God coming into the entrance hall, we could say, of a needy world in order to bring light and to bring life and to bring about salvation. The words you see happen at Christmas time, like hope and peace and joy, all of that can only be understood in Jesus Christ, who now has the word of God taken on flesh and dwelt among us. So rather than beginning with Jesus' Jesus' birth, Uh, like Matthew and Luke do in their gospels, very Christmas heavy where there's shepherds and there's wise men and there's Mary and there's Joseph. John instead wants to emphasize the eternal existence of the second person of the Trinity who is the Son of God. So from eternity past, before creation ever took place, there was one called the Word and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus, as we call him and know him as, is God. Don Carson wrote this, he said, stretch your imagination backward, as we will. We can find no point in time where there once when he, there was once when he was not. Let me read that again, got a little wordy and I kind of lost it. Stretch your imagination backward, as we will. We can find no point in time where there was once when he was not. So what Carson's doing here is not just making a random statement, he's commenting on a statement made by Arius, who was declared many, many moons ago to be declared a heretic because he said basically that there was a time, like there was an actual occurrence and and a time in history when the word did not exist, the word that John talks about in John chapter one. In other words, a time when God created the word. And that must be rejected because the word has existed throughout all of history in a way that we can't even fathom eternity. For all time, there has never been a time where he did not exist. So he makes that case out of the gate, the eternal existence of the word of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and then we see a transition happen where now this is gonna all be played out and what this arrival means. Like now what it looks like for the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the foyer of God into the life of this world. And in chapters two through four, we see the idea of God doing something new. This idea of newness, we could say, and 
The chapters can be summarized by 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. A new creation. That the old is gone, the new has come. And that's what happens for us when Jesus comes into our lives. He makes us new. He doesn't see us as our past. He doesn't want us to dwell in who we used to be. He makes us someone new. And he wants newness and freshness and a new creation and being made alive to, to be a new way that we think about our lives in Jesus Christ. That now we see ourselves that way. Like as actual, new, created, made alive people. And what happens throughout the book of John and Jesus really making the case of not just who he was but what he came to do, pointing us to a greater truth or find, found in what's called the seven signs in the book of John. A very significant component of John's writing centers around these seven signs. They are turning water into wine, which is found in John 2, verses 1 through 11. Cleansing the temple, John 2, verses 12 through 17. Healing the nobleman's son, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Healing what's referred to as the lame man in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Feeding the multitude, you see the feeding of the 5,000 with just a few, little bit of bread and fish in John 6. Healing the blind man, and then raising Lazarus, Jesus' friend who had died. And we see this about the signs in verse 11, which talks about the first sign, but makes sense for all of them. That Jesus did this, chapter 2, the first of his signs, which is the wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this is why the signs took place. Jesus is doing these things to reveal who he is to his disciples so that word will come into place so that they will believe. And they will see his purpose and see that he really is God with us. I'm going to read the wedding water into wine story. On the third day, chapter 2, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine, which for some of you would certainly be a state of emergency. Baptists are like, I don't know what you're talking about. What? Presbyterians are like, heck yes, sorry. So what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, and this next line is really important. My hour has not yet come. Remember, the things he's doing in this part of the Bible, these signs are pointing to something further down the road. His hour had not come yet. In other words, it wasn't his time basically to go on the scene and accomplish his ultimate mission. Yes, he could still perform signs and do things, but the reason why he came to this world originally was to die for the sins of God's people. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew that you may believe. I'm doing these signs, you may believe. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, which is a good strategy. 
You can slip in the cheap wine, no one's going to know. But you have kept the fine wine until now. And we see that Jesus did this, I read this earlier, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. So what's happening here? We see Jesus talk about the hour, that his hour had not yet come. But what's happening here is Jesus is saying, as in the hour, he's in a wedding context that matters where he is. Don't lose sight of that. And what's happening here, he's saying, you think that this is the time. I'm pointing you to a different wedding. To the real, actual wedding, ultimately, of God and his people, of the bride and the bridegroom. See, the signs are miracles that attest to who Jesus really is. And here at the very beginning of his ministry, right out of the gate, he's showing how his ministry not just begins, but how it will end. How it will end in a wedding, a marriage of himself and the church. Point to something that is to come. This is basically save the date before they were cool when it comes to a wedding. He's pointing them to a time and a day that is to come. There'll be a greater wedding that takes place between a bride and a bridegroom, Jesus and his church. And he also here, again, like I said earlier, is focusing on what is new. The pots for purification are mentioned, perhaps before the meal, where Jewish people would purify themselves, would clean themselves by their ritual. And John's emphasis here is that even that much water, that much water, up to the brim, we're told. That's why it gives that specific detail there. Like, why do we care if the water's up to the brim? Like, on the surface, like, who cares? Like, how full the water is. But the water, a purification symbol, here, many scholars believe, is giving us the inability of the old law with all its purification rites to cleanse us from our sins. And the contrast is, this sign is pointing us to what only Jesus as the bridegroom can do. See, this wedding spotlights the glory of Jesus, not only in the abundance of wine that he can produce, but the abundant wine of the blood of Jesus Christ. That we cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. It must actually be the blood of the bridegroom who cleanses us. Skip Ryan writes this, that Jesus has a passion for the purity of his bride. All of us are stained, and only the shed blood he would spill will wash those stains of sin out. This miracle is an expression of the superabundant grace of the new covenant ushered in by Jesus Christ. George Herbert, an English poet in the 17th century, I love this. He wants us to think about the wedding banquet this way and the blood of Christ this way. Love is the liquor, sweet and so divine which my God tastes as blood and I as wine. How incredible is that? That wine points us to the blood of Christ, what he is going to accomplish on our behalf for us. And for us, it's represented, for Christ, it's his blood, but for us, it tastes like sweet, fine, perfect, aged, a gajillion dollars a bottle, wine. It's the greatest understanding of his blood and his grace. Chapters three, we see there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, so very religious, very prominent, very accomplished. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So he knows some things about Christ. He's going at night, he wants to be a little kind of incognito. He'd get in trouble by other people seeing him associate with Jesus. For no one could perform these signs, again, the signs are a huge deal, unless God were with him. 
Jesus replied to him, I don't want to get into all that. Truly I tell you, unless someone's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here he's talking to a very religious, devout, rule-following, law-keeping person here, a member of the highest Jewish religious societies, and he tells them, unless you're born again, you don't need to be talking about God because you're not going to know him and can't see him. It's really important, especially in the 2021, where there's often just kind of like sort of pushback or maybe just a little anxiety or angst towards anything that would be considered like, uh, that reminds someone of like fundamentalism or like kind of old Southern revivalism or something like that. And a lot of times when you hear the words born again, people's minds naturally go to this sort of preacher screaming at you with a sweat rag and you know, all, all those type of things and asking you to you know, do this and do that. It's really important you know that born again language is not old fashioned tent revival language. It's Jesus language. It is a critical biblical truth that people are dead in their sins, read Ephesians chapter two, and must be brought to life by God himself. We have died a spiritual death and we must actually be born again. He asked this question, it would be confusing to him. He said, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Yeah, that sounds kind of crazy. He's like, what are you talking about? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, so a spiritual birth, not just a natural birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. He goes, do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it is going. It comes from or where it is going. So is with everyone born of the spirit. And then to this religious Jewish leader, he goes Old Testament with him to help him understand the fact that the word of God is in front of him and dwelling among him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and we did this back months ago when we were in Numbers, where people were dying because of their sin, snake bites were happening, but if you looked up to the bronze serpent, you would live. That is, was a foreshadow of pointing us to Christ who will save people from the punishment of their sins. He goes, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son. This is the practical outworkings of John chapter one. Why did he do that? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus was not on a mission of condemnation, but to save the world through him. It was a rescue mission, not a condemnation mission. Now, verse 17 always sounds really nice and it's really easy to talk about as a pastor, but verse 18 tells us why 17 is true. Says, Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Good news, there's no condemnation, Romans 8 says, for those who are in Christ. We are declared not guilty of our sins because Jesus was guilty in our place, even though he never sinned. He took on the guilt for us. He says, anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to condemn people because they're already condemned, because they've sinned. So why am I going to come condemn people who already are? I'm not going to add insult to injury. The verdict's already been declared. 
They are dead in their sins. They have sinned against God. They have violated God's law. They said, God, no thanks. I don't want to worship you as I was created to be. I just want to worship your things instead. I want to worship myself. I just want to do me what's right in my own eyes. They're already condemned. So why did Jesus come? Because God so loved the world. He came on a rescue mission to come and redeem a people and forgive a people and move people from condemnation to no condemnation because in our place condemned, he stood on the cross and shed his blood to purify us and make us new. And then in John chapter four is a story about the woman at the well. So we do a really big swing from the very religious, devout Nicodemus who's kind of a who's who of religious people, knew the law, followed the customs, did the religious stuff, but didn't know Jesus, wasn't born again. And then you get to a woman who we're told had five husbands. And the person she was with now was also not her husband. Somebody who is living their life in brokenness. Sexual brokenness, relational brokenness. She would go to the, get the time of day that she would go to get water, the story tells us was significant, so she could see as least amount of people as possible, and not because she was introverted, because of her shame, because of her sin, because of her current life she was living as well. Here you have two stories side by side. One of Jesus telling the person who thinks they're saved by their morality, that they must be born again. And then we have Jesus in the next chapter go to someone what would feel like on the, ultra, on the opposite end of the spectrum, someone that felt like their life was hopeless because of their sin. And Jesus tells both of those people, you need me. You need me the person trying to save themselves by their righteousness and the person running away from God in their rebellion, each of those people is equally in need of being born again. I mean, does anything spell out the John 3.16 story that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that then Jesus going to a Samaritan woman at a well in sexual brokenness and offering her life? I mean, what a story that you will believe this idea of being new is being offered and all must need all need and must receive it. In six through eight, attention starts to build with a lot of heightened opposition to Jesus. After feeding the 5,000, after walking on water, there's a key verse in these chapters to know what's going on. It's chapter eight, verse 25, where the question is asked of him, who are you? Like, who is this guy? Like, who are you? And this was, this was asked more in the context of who do you think you are? Who are you? Who do you think you are? You ever wondered, maybe I'm the only one who thinks all these kind of things, I don't know, but why so many hearts are kind of warmed and like have all the feels by the baby in the manger at Christmas, but often those hearts aren't actually changed? I think about that every Christmas time. That's not me condemning, it's not my job. Just wondering, like, I see all these people that I didn't even know were Christians. I had no idea. And all of a sudden they have these decorations up and they know the songs by memory and not just like Jingle Bells and Walking in a Winter Wonderland, but like Silent Night and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and songs that are specifically 
unapologetically about Jesus, about the incarnation, and a lot of them, they have a nativity scene in their house. I'm going, what's, not that I have following Jesus mastered, I'm a work in progress like everyone else in this room is, but how can your heart be worn by that? What's going on? But then not changed by that baby in the manger. And I think, I'm a simple guy, I think when you read the scriptures, I'm not gonna try to overcomplicate it, I think they just don't understand who actually, who actually became that baby. Like who? Like who is the actual one who became flesh and dwelt among us? Here's what Jesus said. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes me will ever be thirsty again. This is a quench of spiritual hunger, of spiritual thirst. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, which is incredible to know God's sovereignty in that. That every person that God has willed to save will come to Christ. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That Jesus does not reject us. That he holds on to us. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of, the, of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. These are the people of God, the elect people of God. It's his will that Jesus would lose none of them, but should raise them up on the last day. God always accomplishes his will, and his will is that none of the people that he is giving to salvation, to be redeemed, that none of them, not one single person will be lost that his accomplishments, of salvation accomplishments will be carried out in every single one. And we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that God is gonna use the pronouncement and the declaration of his word, of the gospel story, to not lose one. This is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's Jesus using really clear language that he has the power to save, that he is in step with the will of God. And then we see a scene from John chapter eight that is massive here, massive. This is like a Bible altering moment for the people hearing this. Chapter eight, your father Abraham, he's talking to these people who wanted to kill him, rejoice to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now he's going all Abraham on them. And this Jewish audience, that was sacred. This is a big deal. And he's telling them that all the way back to, that Abraham knew about this, that Abraham knew that one day a Messiah would come and, and they'd be okay with that part, but the fact that Jesus is telling them, I am that one. He says, my, like I am the one. He saw it and was glad. He rejoiced to see my day. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus told them, this is the bombshell right here, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So what do they do? It's how big of a deal it was. I told you it was intense. They picked up stones to throw at him. Like, that's their response. He says this, 
picks up stones. They're, they're ready to kill him right there for what they believe are the most blasphemous of words. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Now, now, why would this cause such an outbreak? Why is this a massive story in the Bible? Because the origin of what he is saying before Abraham was, I am. Those words, I am, the origin is the burning bush where God appears to Moses to tell him to go into Egypt and to go release a captivated people and lead them into freedom out of slavery. And Moses is like, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? I'm just going to sh- go show up and be like, what's up? Like, like who, who, what do I tell him? He goes, tell him I am sent you, which is Yahweh, a name that God gives himself. We see in verse 13 of Exodus chapter three, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask what is his name, what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So now everything is going to come down for us to the question really of is Jesus actually who he said he was? See, Jesus doesn't leave the way of, for us of, of moderation or nuance or balance. He, he doesn't leave that open to us regarding who he is. Like when you actually begin to wrestle with the I am-ness of Jesus Christ, you are actually wrestling with how different he is from us. That he actually is God. The same name used, I am, for God, he is telling these people that is who I am. I know we like to portray Jesus as a man, and he is a man. He's fully God, fully man. He's the one who identifies with us in our weakness. That's the whole meaning of the incarnation of the, one fle- of the, the, the in-fleshness of Christ, of the word, I should say. But you must also let the other shoe drop. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. He's not like us. He is holy. He comes from God in a way that we do not. Like he is different, he is above, he is, he is different than us. So, so one who is that holy and that perfect, who is God himself, how can being in his presence actually be good news? That kind of sounds like scary news to me. Why it's good news is that he also is actually our savior. He is both holy He is I am, and also the little baby who grew up to meet our greatest need, which was to be born again and given new life. See, our judge has also become our savior. So now you can draw near to God without fear because you're his child. That in Christ you can call him father. See, I like to talk about God's power because I know that I'm a weak person. I like to talk about God's mercy because I mess up and I need it a lot. I like to talk about God's wisdom because I have difficult decisions to make like you do all the time. But God is holy, it's like, eh. I don't like that as much because it tells me of my true condition. So how can the holiness of God be a comfort to me? Because the one who is the I am died for me. And he died for you. And Jesus wants the people to understand exactly who it is who's standing in front of them. We see the story of Lazarus, where Lazarus dies and Jesus' friends summon him to come and they're upset because 
can't Jesus just let him be alive and not cause him to die and all these things? And here's what Jesus told them in verse 23. He gets there and he's dead. Lazarus is dead. And he's like, chapter 11, he's like, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Lazarus' sister, he's like, he's gonna rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now Jewish people, minus the Sadducees, believed in a resurrection. They believed that one day, like God's people would ultimately be, go to heaven. They, they believed that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And that belief word is so important. He says, do you believe this? Like, that's what I actually want to know. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. See, Jews believe in the resurrection, but here Jesus is telling her actually how it happens. That Jesus would eventually die. Yes, he's going to let Lazarus, he's going to rise Lazarus up, he's going to bring Lazarus back to life in his power. But ultimately, Lazarus and every person in the world, if you're healed or not, even the most miraculous, crazy healings are still going to die in this world. But see, Lazarus would ultimately live forever because Jesus would die. He is the resurrection. And he wants all the listeners to hear and to know that the way you can be assured there is a resurrection of the dead is if it actually comes to the one who is the resurrection, the life, and his name is Jesus. And he would die so that Lazarus and all others would be able to live. Jesus prays in John 17 about his followers. He says, I've given them your word. What's the result of that going to be? The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Like there does, we're called at the same time, we're called to love the world, period. And we're told at the same time, the world is not gonna love us back. When you take Jesus' name and the values of this world, there's always gonna be a hard collision. Like they cannot coexist. We can try to make it cooler, we can try to smoothen the edges, try to make it sound better, more appealing, more westernized but it's always gonna make noise. Those of you starting school this coming week, our middle schoolers, high schoolers in this room, just know that you have to regularly make a decision. Are you gonna follow Jesus or are you gonna follow the world? And you're never promised it's gonna be easy. Like you're never promised that the world's gonna applaud you for wanting to follow Jesus. So the question you have to regularly ask yourself is whose approval am I looking for? Am I looking for the approval of the world, which is very tempting and I totally understand and I still deal with it myself? Or are you actually gonna rest in the fact that God already approves of you in Jesus and has already told us and given us a heads up that it's not gonna be easy because you're walking in a world that's hostile towards him. And he says this, here's a solution in verse 15. He's like, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. You see that, students, like, like middle school, high school students? You, listen to me here. God's solution to helping you live the Christian life is not to remove you from all the hard things. It's not to take you away from the hard things in this world. But the prayer instead is that he will protect you from the evil one. Remember, everyone that God has given him, he will not lose. Like Satan cannot take you from Jesus. Like He has you. And you have to realize that and remember that. 
and he tells us who we are. He goes, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Again, we belong to Jesus now. So he says, instead of taking them out of the world, he says, sanctify them, as in make them more like me by your truth. Your word is truth, that declaration. We can have confidence in the scriptures. It is true. He says, as you have sent me into the world. Again, he was a rescue mission. Guess what I'm gonna do now? I'm gonna send them into the world. They're gonna be the ones who go in as people not of this world, saved and rescued by Christ with a mission into the world. That's his prayer. Not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them, you sanctify them, and we're gonna send them with the good news. Every single Christian this applies to right here. Like, don't think you're just working a job. Don't think you're just starting school because the summer's over, teachers. Don't think you're just a stay-at-home mom. Don't think you're just a stay-at-home dad. Don't think you're just retired. That every single one of us is sent. Sent to our families, sent into the world, sent into whatever context it is that God has given us in our neighborhood, our family, our workspace, wherever it might be, that every single one of us is sent. And it's completely against the will of God we see in this prayer for Christians to be removed from the world. We're to be in it. John concludes the book by saying this, the last two chapters, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So again, in other words, there's a lot of other stuff. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's saying, this is the goal. This is why I wrote this. So you'll believe. And then in chapter 21, which is the last chapter of the book, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are many also, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose I am the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So John's saying there's so much to his story, but I'm just telling you the things that I think you need to know that God wants you to know. Because we're told that all scripture is written, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And some words of Jesus to conclude my time up here today from John 16. I have told you these things, the signs, the wonders, the I am statements, the declarations, so you may have peace. But that's the goal. Because your hearts are troubled. There's uncertainty in our world right now, there's anxiety in our world right now, there's grief, there's brokenness, there's hurt, there's pain, there's fear, there's tension, there's hostility. There's brokenness, there's fractured churches, fractured relationships. I've told you these things, you may have peace. He goes, because guess what? You will have suffering in this world. This world is broken. One day it all will be fixed. One day it will be prepared, repaired. One day it will be made new. But in the meantime, we live in a broken world. He goes, but be courageous. Why? Not because you're awesome. Not because you have what it takes. He says, because I have conquered the world. Did he conquer the world in how one might think of conquering with might and power and war and armies? No. He's conquered the world by accomplishing the mission for which he was sent. To come and to die to redeem a people out of God's love and for God's glory. 
and for God's mission into the world. It's an upside down kingdom that might empower and these type of things were achieved not through war, but through death and through resurrection. So we need Christians to respond to Jesus by being courageous. We need more courageous Christians. Like Jesus is already one. Like we really, when it comes to our lives, don't have anything to lose spiritually. You have a lot of things to lose in this world to stand up for Christ. A lot, a lot to lose. And Jesus is aware of that. And what he's telling you is, keep going. Like it's worth it. He is actually the one he claimed to be. Like believe these things, he said. Believe these things. Like don't feel pressure to bow down to secular ideology. Don't feel pressure to make sure that people who are watching online that have strong opinions make sure that you're on the right side, whatever that looks like. Be courageous. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Like we need, like, I joke, I, I call, I call uh, my kid's generation the net around the trampoline generation. And... They're never going to understand falling off a trampoline and breaking your arm when you land. They'll never, they'll never know that joy. But I just think, I'm, I'm just messing with that. I, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't care if it matters if there's a letter on your trampoline or not. But what is, what is the posture today of parents, of kids, always? Be careful. What's the last thing someone says when someone, when someone walks up the door? Be safe. Be careful. The last thing my dad would tell us was don't do anything stupid. That's another story for another time. That was helpful. I tell my kids the same thing. What if we change that? Instead of always going, be safe, be careful. What does that mean anyways? Walk slower? I mean, like, what, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> what if we said be brave? Like, be brave. Be courageous today. Talk to somebody who no one ever talks to today. That may not sound like brave, but it gets you out of your comfort zone. In our world today, that's brave. Stand up for Christ. Tell someone to knock it off. Tell your coworkers about Jesus. Refuse to bow down to the latest trends of ideology that gets shoved down your throat that you feel pressure to bow down to. Business owner, lead an organization, say we're not gonna bow to the new corporate woke world's rules. We're not going to do that. We're not going to pretend the Bible says something it doesn't. We're not. We're not going to do those things. Like, you know what? I'm not going to also respond to people, maybe not online, but send some of the text messages and go, you know what? Your little rants you do about whether or not someone should have the mask or not, or like, like, that's not Christ-like. Like, it's hurting our witness by how you're speaking to people. You're acting like this is your religion. Like, like your Trump stuff, like, is religion. Like, you're over the top. Then, like, you need to chill out. Like, I can tell you watch more Fox than you do read your Bible. Like, it's obvious. Like, your identity politics and your woke stuff 24-7, it's not of Christ. It's out of control. It's not of the Bible. It's not of Jesus' followers. It's got to stop. Like, we need to have those conversations. Why? Not because we're trying to win an argument. Not because we're trying to say, hey, be more like me or more like this person. Why? Because we have a mission. And the mission is Jesus, and it requires courage. 
courage. Because more than ever right now, more than ever, the gospel's not in trouble because the gospel's gonna go forever. Nothing we can do to hinder the gospel is gonna go and go and go and go. But I think oftentimes the mission's in trouble because we get sidetracked on what it is and what it's not. So tell me we gotta contend for the word, contend for proper teaching, not give an inch about who Jesus is and what he's done. Believe that God forgives people. You don't gotta serve a sentence for the rest of your life for one time when you messed up and said the wrong thing. That God forgives, that God loves, that God redeems. That Jesus didn't come to this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. The world might, be, might have life and live through him. So what is the conclusion of all this? He goes, I've told you these things so you may have peace. You're gonna have suffering in the world, but be courageous because I have conquered the world. Let's believe that. We don't need to be the people on eggshells in this world. Let the world be on eggshells. We have peace because we have Jesus. And that stretches across any time zone, any nation, any ethnicity, any language. He's a God for all people, for all times. And we can know him through the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. Let's have some guts. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the story of John. Lord, I know right now that we are in a time where people's first identity is often found in their politics, in their ideology, in their personal experiences, rather than in Christ. I know I can be guilty of that every day. So we ask for your grace. Take down our defenses, take down our yeah buts, and Lord, help us see Jesus so that our life will be about him. But the one who is the, the great I am, that he will be the one that drives our lives. Pray for our students in this room as they go back to school this week. Lord, you give them courage. To the courage to not bow down to whatever is popular, the things of this world or how other people think they're supposed to think and act and say and be. Let them be about Christ for our teachers. Lord, let them shine as lights so that others, as your word says, will see their good works and give glory to you as a result. I pray for this new semester starting for college coming soon in a few weeks as well. We ask that our college ministry will make a difference on the campuses in this town. Lord, I ask that the people that call our church their home will see work as a mission field, home as a mission field. And we'll be a courageous people who are about Christ. We will center our lives on the name of Jesus. We need you because on our own, we are not good at this. We depend on Christ, the one who came to save and rescue a people like us. We are a grateful people. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing some good news.